Welcome back to The Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. Today, I'll be speaking with Claire Stober and Mariana Wright, Bruderhof members, colleagues, and friends, about what it looks like to make the choice to live without private property. Welcome to both of you. Um, Pete is not with us today, but Mariana is Pete's sister, so that's something. Um, Mariana, do you want to introduce us to the what we're going to be talking about today? Sure. So good morning. Um, so this is a conversation about what it's like to live without money, which both Claire and I do as members of the Bruderhof. So for anyone who's not um, aware of this aspect of our church, we have what we call a common purse, and that means that we share all of our money. And um, once you become a member and make the life vows that make you a member, um, you don't have any possessions anymore. And we do this um, because we read about it in the Acts of the Apostles, where the first church, that's what happened. Um, and it's a model that's repeated itself through history, not often, um, but there's been a thread of communities, um, the monastic communities of um, from the third century on, um, the Waldensians, um, the Beguins and Beghards, um, Francis and Claire of Assisi were an example of this, people who felt like that in order to follow Jesus fully, you had to divest yourself of everything. And then um, as Anabaptists, we look back to the uh, 16th century Anabaptists, the group known as the Hutterites, who did this as well, who um, everyone began sharing all their possessions, and they have been doing that for 400 years. So. Um, as I said, Claire and I are both members of the Bruderhof. I grew up um, as a child of Bruderhof parents and am actually fourth generation Bruderhof on my mom's side. Um, but like anybody, I had to decide as an adult um, whether or not I wanted to become a member of the community, which I did when I was 22. And um, at that time, I took vows. Um, and so I was going to start by reading the vow that we take. Um, this is one of five questions you answer when you take the step of becoming a member. It says, are you willing for the sake of Christ to put yourself completely at the disposal of the church community to the end of your life, all your faculties, the entire strength of your body and soul, and all your property, both that which you now possess and that which you may later inherit or earn. And so we are all in. Um, and I think it's important in that question, the um, Material possessions are put in context of the other thing which we give, which is the entire strength of our body and soul. That is that we dedicate our whole life to following Jesus with brothers and sisters in this particular church. Claire's story is a little bit different than yours. Um, she did not grow up in the Bruderhof and um, joined as an adult. Claire, do you want to sort of give us a little bit of that background? Sure. I came about 31 uh, years ago when I was 37. Um, and I'd, came, I'd come from a very different background. Um, I grew up as a middle-class boomer, and to me that meant you live within your paycheck, you only go into debt to purchase a house, uh, you pay off your credit card every month, and you start saving for your retirement as soon as you can. I started in my 20s. Um, and people have asked how it feels to give in all your money and possessions. I found that there's a lot more tied up in accruing wealth and all it represents that the word money didn't begin to describe what one was giving up. Um, I've learned that everyone looks at 
money differently. I happen to see it as security. Um, I felt like it was a cushion that could protect me against what I called the vagaries of life. And I wanted to amass so much or enough that I could handle whatever life threw in my direction. Um, so there I was um, in my late 20s, and I had um, been able to earn enough um, because I started a, I teamed up with a talented designer, and we started a graphic design and advertising business when I was 24. And so 15 years later, we were two undereducated suburbanites. I only finished two <laughs> years of college, and he barely finished high school, making more money than we'd ever imagined. But it didn't fall into our laps. We worked hard for it uh, to build up the business. Um, it took a minimum, I'd say, of seven years of 60-hour weeks before I felt like I could slow down a bit. Hmm. Um, we both bought second houses on Nantucket. Granted, mine was a humble Cape Cod. Um, but he was investing in museum-quality antiques while I was building a nest egg for my early retirement, I thought. So that's when I woke up one Saturday morning and I realized I could buy anything I wanted and yet it wouldn't fill a void within me that I needed to be filled. Um, I couldn't describe that void at the time, but I now see it was sort of what I would call living for a purpose greater than my own security or happiness. Mm -hmm. And when I'd started out 15 years earlier, I had nothing but a newfound relationship with Jesus. I'd, I'd had a what I would call a Damascus Road experience. Um, and now here I was, like the rich young man, and realizing all I wanted was the meaning and assurance of that close dependence on him again. Mm -hmm. I'd lost my first love. So as I prayed to God and begged him for Jesus again to be my first love, and that I didn't care what it took, I realized with a sinking feeling it would take everything. Mm -hmm. And yet I was willing, if that's what it took, to have that relationship again. So that prayer set off a whole string of events that led me to arrive at the Bruderhof two years later. Um, I, of course, um, left that business uh, went to live um, with another group of Christians, um, but still wasn't finding what I was looking for. And as a new Christian 20 years earlier, I'd heard about the community and how they lived like the early Christians, sharing all things in common. And since I had very little money at that time, I remember thinking that sounded really radical and exciting. And every few years, I would think of the community that shared everything. And as I accrued more money, the less exciting that sounded. In fact, I was no longer even comfortable thinking about it. So when I did finally come to the community, it was out of a longing to find something genuine, a living community that put Jesus before everything else. And my, um, within the first nine months, I found that and a lot more. Um, it took me a while. Um, but here I found Christians living at a depth of life and fellowship that I never dreamed existed. And it wasn't something you could see every day or even right away. Um, I found it was only apparent if I went below the surface. And it did come at a cost. I would have to change. And I would need to learn to trust and make myself vulnerable, just like everyone else who lived here. <clears throat> And I'm <clears throat> sure I'm not the only visitor to the community who went to bed every night 
staring at the naked light bulb in the ceiling thinking, can I do this? <laughs> or who woke up at four in the morning with what I call the icy fingers of fear gripping my heart as I grappled with, what about no health insurance? What if the community collapses and I don't have any retirement money saved up? And I laugh now at what I found hard because as soon as I became a member, I've never worried about health insurance retirement again. Um, in truth, I've had better health care in the community than I did before, and I'm now 68 and not even thinking of retirement. Mm -hmm. I've also had to reject the idea of being defined by how much money one did or did not have. I had to let go of a lot of what I call false securities. So for me, it's been a lot of, um, I would say, dismantling of who I thought I was and what I mm -hmm. thought was important. What was the actual, like, can you remember like your first night after joining, after you, after you made the vows? Um, what was, what did that feel like? Joy, um, great joy, um, peace, contentment. Um, but my first couple nights when I came here as a visitor were, everything was different and you're constantly needling yourself, can I see doing this the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. But when I joined, and it was 18 months later that I actually joined. Mm -hmm. So I had been here quite a while. I can, um, would like to answer the same question. So mm -hmm. I, it was a very difficult decision for me to decide, did I want to join this community? Being fourth generation doesn't necessarily make it easier. You question yourself, am I doing this for my parents? Am I doing this because it's what's accustomed to me? Um, and. I had a lot of ideas of things that I thought would be great for me to do and ways I felt like I could contribute to the world and so forth. But I came to a point where I did decide to become a member. And the un and, and th this was after just a, a really difficult and terrible period of about six months of self-questioning and doubt and so forth. And I made the decision. I publicly made my request. And I was just swept with euphoria and completely did not expect it. Um, and I often think back to that. And then, like Claire says, once you have decided, same as once you've decided who your person is that you're going to marry, if you marry, mm -hmm. and you don't look away from that, within within that decision, your um, everything can follow from that. Um, mm -hmm. Once you've made it, and and you know the fears and the um, ideas of what else might have happened, you've decided. Those are not things that you are going to have in your life anymore, and it's great. I often describe you to people as married monastics, essentially. So you take vows of poverty and obedience and chastity within marriage if you marry. And it does seem to me like the thing, the thing that is closest in non-Bruderhof experience, other than you know someone who's a, a Catholic taking a monastic vow, is something like a marriage vow, where you're just like, you know, if you're taking marriage in the way that, that the Bible presents it, where you're just like, okay, there are many possibilities in the world. This is, this is what God has called me to. This is the person who I'm throwing my lot in with completely. Only you're doing that, you're throwing your lot in with each other completely. I can remember thinking, <clears throat> after I'd been here about six weeks and, um, I was asked, you know, so what are you thinking? And I don't know where it came, but I popped out with, this place runs on trust. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not trust so much in the other people 
but trust in their love of God and mm -hmm. their willingness to um, serve and do what's, you know, what, and be obedient to God. So it's not their personalities, but it's their level of commitment that we're all um, in, held up in trust to. When I was first converted in grad school, I, I think I read Bonhoeffer's Life Together, or I read some of it, and it totally freaked me out because he had this, some line about how we don't encounter each other sort of directly, we, count, we encounter each other through Christ. Mm -hmm. And I thought that sounded to me like you were like isolated from each other, like you never actually sort of, it was almost a Kantian thing where you couldn't like, it, you could only encounter the phenomena of each other, you couldn't really know each other. And I just think of it so differently now, like when you kind of, when you do have that kind of unity in Christ, it's, it's a greater unity, but you can, you're also like trusting, you're not requiring the other people to be God. You're like letting them be human beings because Jesus is God. Mm -hmm. And I could imagine that that must be a lot, <laughs> a lot easier to trust than if you were just kind of like trusting people flat out in a kind of secular communitarian way. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And it is, you know, like you say, you, you can apologize to a marriage, so you've, you've married this one person and, and, you know, everyone comes with their flaws and everybody, you know, the community collectively and individually, you have your flaws, but what holds you together is your shared purpose and your decision to not walk away from each other. And so then, you know, you can, um, so, so I, I think that's an important part, Claire was talking about trust. Um, why do we trust each other? Because we've decided that we're we're in this 100%, you know, to the end of our days, and um, we can do that because we have the shared purpose of believing that this is how Jesus calls us to live. Mm -hmm. Another thing is, another one of the questions that we're asked at baptism is, are you sure that you were <clears throat> called to this way of life by God? And to me, that fits in with um, again, marriage or even deciding for the community. Um, when you're married to someone, and you know, we all have flaws, as she said. Um, you have to realize, you have to go back on or back to the fact that you were called by God to marry this person, mm -hmm. and um, um, you know, work it out. The same with joining the community. I really felt called, and mm -hmm. I was, and I really. Um, value that question. Mariana, you mentioned when we were talking about doing this that you, you have literally never had a bank account. You've never, um, you know, had a credit card or you've never had the kind of ordinary American style experience of money. What, how does that, when you're talking to other people, like what, what, it's impossible to, to really ask this question, but like, how do you feel like your experience of the world is different based on what you've observed? So it's hard for me to know because I grew up in the Bruderhof. I did go to college and at that point I had a job and I had um, a bunch of cash in my pocket. Um, it was probably never more than 20 bucks in a week. And then I backpacked around for a while after that. And again, um, no financial stability there. And so then I came back and became a member. So I literally have never had a bank account or a debt or, um, you know, I don't own anything and I never have. So I don't actually know how it feels. What I do see, um, for instance, 
if I look on social media or read, you know, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, the, I can cut those two, um, read um, about people's experiences um, and the things that are mediated by money for people where it's where their children go to school, um, what kind of health care their children have. My husband and I have five children. Um, where people live, getting a mortgage, a house, having to advocate for your boss for a higher um, salary. Um, all these things are not part of my life, have never been part of my life. The people, my colleagues at work, um, the ones who are professionals and the ones like me who are college dropouts, um, get the same salary and we're, you know, we work together as brothers and sisters. Um, the people I live next to, um, and the Bruderhof, we, each family has their apartment, um, but then we live in houses with other families and apartments. Again, um, our neighbor is a dentist. Um, neither Kent or I graduated from college. It, it literally never, um, it, it doesn't affect anything about our relationship, how we live together, what our houses look like. It's all the same. So I don't really know. We're told to be like the lilies of the field, right? That we should not worry about tomorrow. Um, and living in community and sharing all your money you literally can be a lily of the field um you know i don't worry about my children um being taken care of if god forbid i would not live tomorrow you know mm -hmm. they would be taken care of so that's the effect of making these promises but it's actually that's not the reason that we decide to not have money we do that in obedience to jesus and then what follows is community, um, but it, it's not, um, you, you, you make vows or you follow Jesus because you want to love Jesus. And so these things are the result of that. It's not like we are, um, say, well, we would like to set up the most efficient society possible, which mm -hmm. by the way, community is super efficient. There's like so little redundancy in material things that we buy and so forth because we can share because we do share. Um, but, but that's not why we do it. And so I, I think that's really important to remember that we have made these promises not because of it's some ideal system that we think should exist, but because we are told to do it. And that's how we want to live our lives in mm -hmm. obedience to that calling. And I would do it even if it was, you know, not wonderful for me and my children, even if they didn't go to an you know, absolutely fantastic school and, you know, have top-notch health care we would still do it. Mm -hmm. So all these things are a byproduct of keeping your eye first on Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's something that like, at least in my observation over the past seven years, I guess, of being around you guys, that's something that like you don't take for granted. It's not, there is kind of like this danger that you're aware of, of putting community first in a way, instead of putting Jesus first. And it seems to me that like that the importance of like checking your hearts and you know making sure that in, in every year and in every generation that it's not about perpetuating the community for its own sake that that's kind of a side effect um and it seems to me that I, i've just seen that over and over again with you guys you do have a very strong like you know bruderhof has been around for a hundred years and Obviously, you look back to earlier Anabaptist communities and, and earlier, you know, Catholic communities as well. But 
it seems like that strong culture and that strong history is allowed is is like allowed to exist because it's not put first. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that um, that's it. It does make sense. Um, and there have been times in our history when <clears throat> we admit that it got backwards, that community was first, and we had to um, consciously change that, repent of that and change it. The other thing that money, it seems to me, can be is, so in mystery novels or in, you know, thriller uh, movies, there's this thing that's referred to as the MacGuffin. So it's like the thing that drives the plot, like you're looking for the treasure or you're trying to find the the telegram or like whatever it is. It's the thing that sort of sets off the, the hero on or heroine on their quest. And it's it's the thing that they're aiming at. So. Um, you know, in Indiana Jones, um, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's like finding the Ark. So that's what that's what drives the plot. And it seems to me that for a lot of people, money is kind of the MacGuffin in their lives. It's the thing that like tells them that they should do things. It's the thing that kind of organizes their effort um, and and makes things seem interesting. Almost, it, it gives them a reason to get up in the morning. And it's weird because like taking money out of the equation, you guys, it's not like you guys don't work hard. <laughs> you definitely work hard, but you work hard for the purposes, like the ends that are natural to the work rather than for money, which is kind of extraneous to the work. So, you know, Claire, you design, you know, you designed the, most recently the thing that I, of yours that I loved the most was the, the cover for um, the new Vodalashkin book. And the purpose of that was very clearly, like, the purpose of your work was the beautiful, you know, graphic design, the, the cover of this book. The purpose of your work was not the money that you got from it. And it seems to me that, like, that reordering of work is also really important. So I guess, yeah, I, I'd love to know, like, what it's like to work, especially for you, Claire, because you've had both experiences. Mm -hmm. Well... I would say <clears throat> what I've observed and participated in, um, when you take money out of the equation or hierarchy out of the equation, um, you get a lot more cooperation. Um, we work, it, we have two businesses and we design our own um, products that we make and we have teams of designers working on them as a team. We call it strategic design. and. Um, that's where you take a sort of a, I mean, when people can on their own come up with a, a eureka solution to something, but that isn't going to solve all of the different things you have to solve necessarily. And so with a team, you can talk it over, um, each contribute to it and come up with something better than any one person could have done. And you do it without keeping score of who came up with this or that. Um, there's no, you know, raise in it to, um, to or you know, some person trying to become top designer, um, and I see it allowing people who individually could not have do it or have done it come up with something much greater than the sum of themselves, and um, it's the same with um, book design covers. I, you know. I like to sit down before with the editors 
talk to them about what's the book about, who are we talking to, um, what are we trying to achieve, etc., etc. Come up with a number of solutions, possible solutions, and then get their input and then adjust for their input. And we also included um, with our covers the input of our distributors who are even closer to the book trade and try to respond to that. Um, and it, it's worked well for us. Um, they may not say what I would have liked them to say, but you know, I, I've really got to hear them. Um, so it's, it's you're, you can't fail because you're all working together. I think that's another way of looking at it. Um, and I just find it much more um, releasing to work in a cooperative situation. What was the um, the community that you lived in for a while, or that you were part of for a while before the Bruderhof, and what how what happened with that? Well, it was a not really a community. It was a small meeting of um, Quakers. Um, we met in our homes and we um, followed the writings and read a lot of the writings of the early friends. Um, and we dressed like Quakers, and um, our business. I think that in some ways helped our business. When I would show up in downtown D.C. with um, plain dress, um, you know, they would sidle up to the window to look out to see if the horse and buggy was down in the <laughs> down on Fifteenth Street or something. But um, it um, we had, you know, it, it gave us a veneer of integrity and we actually felt like we really need to live up to that and those values. Um, but there was not, um, there was no sense of community and no sense of really building anything or living for something um, that you get um, in a, a community like this. And it was, it was like five people and that would have been very difficult. I've always thought it would be difficult to live in a community where you didn't share everything in common and you all had separate jobs and had to give, say, a percent of your income or, you know, and then you begin, or at least I would find it very difficult not to begin to look at, well, are they giving enough or um, how can they do that on that amount of money or, stuff like that and you know this is this really levels the playing field in a good way to share everything in common so a few months into my um, long-term guest visit um, a friend of mine and her husband had also um, gone and visited a different Bruderhof community and her husband was a um, a man of the world he'd been on every continent including Antarctica and been to Vietnam and grew up on the streets of Philly, so he was not letting anyone get anything over on him, in his words. And um, he called me from the other community a couple months in and said, Claire, what do you feel about it? Are you going to join? And I said, well, I'm feeling really good about it. And he's, he was like, well, have you asked where the money goes and where it comes from? Have you figured out all the finances? And I said, no, but I don't feel like I need to. I trust everyone. I trust them. And um, that's not a problem. And he was sort of stupefied that worldly wise Claire had trusted everything. 
which I think you only get because of, like I said before, everyone is is all in. You can, and, and I think that it really is a, a, you know, as Christians, we actually have to be all in. It's not a hobby or a part time, you know, expression of our spirituality. It is, it, you have to be all in, and and so that really appealed to me when I, you know, decided to become a member. Well, more than appealed to me, you know, you, it's a calling, um, but it makes sense because the people that you know, can drive me crazy. Or, you know, when I say, what is this, you know, is this, you know, a decision or something that that somebody might make about how to pursue, you know, an aspect of the work or something, and you talk to somebody, you have the same basis, and you have the same commitment, and it solves so many problems, as far as just getting along and living. Um, and as far as work goes, again, like I said, I've, I've never worked for money ever. No, I worked in the in the college library, um, which was fantastic. Um, I always wanted to be a librarian, so I had a chance. Um, but I sent my paycheck home then, and then I got the spending money back from the community. Anyways, um, like Claire said, it enables you to work as a team um, with whoever you're working with. And if anyone's ever worked on a well-functioning team, they'll know there's really nothing like it. It's, it's just the best way to work. Um, but you don't have, you're not worrying about, you know, people with, you know, different degrees of education, that that makes a difference or, um, you know, people's social status or anything, all, all that stuff is taken away and you can work and, and work is a, a big, you know, God in uh, Genesis told Adam and Eve, they had to work. And we believe, you know, God expresses himself through creative work. And so it's, it's not just something we do, but it's, it's, that's how we worship. And that's how we um, live together is by working together, whether it's in the factory making equipment for disabled people, which is what we do here at the Woodcrest community where I live, or whether it's making beautiful books in plow or working in the garden, those things are all in service of um, our calling. Just a little housekeeping. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Claire and Mariana after the break. Periodically, from what I've observed, when there's... the So the other um, business that you guys have, as well as Plow, is um, community playthings. So as well as the, the Rift and Equipment business, you also have the children's um, furniture and toy business and what I've seen is um, which I think is probably pretty surprising to a lot of people that when there's a big order or when people you know when there's a lot of things that need to be finished for a big order of, of furniture um, Pete you know my my the editor-in-chief of the magazine and you know Sam who's the the publisher um, technically of the of the publishing house um, they'll you know everyone will kind of chip in to do the the woodworking part um just because it's it, there's not like a, a sense of this is my job and that's your job and i i don't do your job because i'm not a, a woodworker i'm not i'm a, an editor instead and that is also really i think unusual we all work on the floor yeah yeah i just wanted to say that um <clears throat> I noticed when I came, there was a strong work ethic. And we had people in their 70s um, and 80s who loved to go to the shop every day. They would be bored, silly at home, and um, find weekends long and boring 
and really prefer to. Um, it's it's a social interaction as well as the work that they get at, uh, in the shop. The other thing that happened when I was, I would say, a novice, um, which was about a two-year period of time before I became a member, some reporters from the Wall Street Journal came, and they came to plow and wanted to ask about the community life. And what they could not understand and really sort of um, blew their gaskets, I'd say, or made it difficult for them to take it all in is, you mean you all work for no money, but you work really hard? Don't you have any slackers? No. Well, what do you do if somebody does slack? Well, that's not a problem. You know, and they, they just kept asking in many different ways, what if, what if, what if? And it was like, that's not the problem. I mean, the thing that it reminds me most of is, you know, growing up, at, you know, you're 12 and you kind of do want to slack and you don't really want to help around the house or whatever. And my, my family has this place in Connecticut where um, we all go, like all my cousins go and my aunts and uncles. And there's a massive sense of like, there's and there's always stuff to do because we have no electricity. And so it's like, um, you know, everything is constantly in need of upkeep and repair and et cetera. And there's a there's a total ethos of pitching in. Not that like we all work all the time on our vacations, but like there's always projects and like doing a project or starting a project or, you know, getting together with a couple of your cousins and like making, you know, laying a new path or something like that is you wouldn't not do that. There's, there's just not like, there's, there's a sense of like, that's what it is to be a part of the family. And that, that's kind of the, the feeling that I've gotten observing you guys. Um, the other sort of thing that I, I guess, you know, we're kind of talking about Bruderhof stuff in general, as well as, mon you know, money in particular. Um, something's, there's been a change, I think, from when you guys were both baptized into the community in terms of your practice, which is that you now hypothetically would baptize someone without them joining the community. Is that right? Right. What was the the thought process behind that change because to become a member right you are really making a very big decision and um that was for instance when i became a member i was baptized as a christian at the same time that was my entry into faith as a adult um but we don't allow people to make the membership vows before they're 21 because it's you you have to make that really as an adult um because you are potentially sacrificing, a, you are sacrificing a lot. Um, but, you know, people younger than that can, who ought to be baptized. So that, that was the difficulty is, you know, responding to younger people who, who wanted to give their lives to Jesus, but who, you know, you, you have to wait until you're old enough to make that, the decision to divest yourself of everything for your whole life. Um, so that's, that's where that came from. So I have um, something that I would like to read. Um, it's a selection from George MacDonald um, about, it's a sermon about the rich young man. And I think to me, this is a really helpful way to think about this commandment of Jesus to the rich young man to give everything up um, because it's so easy to hear that as um, somebody asking to be 
deprived of something. And I think even for me, having grown up here, you kind of are like, wow, that's a really tough, you know, thing to ask of somebody. But I think you have to hear that question in the other way around as an offer. Um, So this is the sermon. It says, there was nothing like this in the law. Was it not hard? Hard to let earth go and take heaven instead for eternal life to let dead things drop to turn his back on mammon and follow Jesus, lose his rich friends and be of the master's household. Let him say it was hard who does not know the Lord, who has never thirsted after righteousness, never longed for the life eternal. And then he goes on to say, you know, you have to take the steps that are set out in front of you in order to follow a path of discipleship. And the rich young man had gotten to that point. He had fulfilled the law. He had done all the right things. And then he said, what's next? And the next thing was this you know, really difficult and challenging request, um, and he couldn't make it. And so just to read on, was the Lord then premature in his demand on the youth? Was he not ready for it? Was it meant for a test and not as an actual word of deliverance? Did he show the child a step on the stair too high for him to set his foot upon? I do not believe it. He gave him the very next lesson in the divine education for which he was ready. And then he didn't obey, and he goes on to say, a time comes to every man when he must obey, or make such refusal and know it. And I really do think that that, again, as Christians, we are given the example of the first church where, you know, love overflowed in them and they gave up their money. And so that's what we have been given to do in our particular church or part of the church. Um, and so, so, and this this certainly doesn't solve all your problems as a disciple. We still make mistakes and sin and so forth, but you do have to take the steps that are made and then you can, you know, go on to the next step, which might be something seemingly even more difficult, but it's not, um, it, it, it's there to help us enter the kingdom or become part of the kingdom. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to do, um, harder, probably for somebody unlike me who grew up knowing that this thing works you know i didn't have friends asking me do you trust the people there like yes i trust them they're my they're my people you know and i i you know we trust each other and it's worked for a hundred years now and but you you do have to take um do the things that are set out in you know the sermon on the mount as things that in the gospels as things jesus asked of his servants and so that's that's why we've um made these decisions so that we can you know serve more it does seem it's really striking the george mcdonald sermon the the point being it's not about it's not primarily about giving up something it's not primarily about giving up money it's primarily about stepping from your from one household into another so like the 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 direction is into the household of faith and in order to do that, like what that looks like is, you know, in the case of the Breerhof is, you know, giving up your money and giving your possessions, you know, over to the community. But it's not, then you're, you're not then left alone. As you do that, the point of doing that is that you are entering into a new household. And that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and this has, like I said, it hasn't happened often in history, but it has, you know, there, there have been communities, there's also have been individual um, people, a story that has inspired Kent and myself very much is um, Hudson Taylor, who was a, a missionary who went to 
China in the uh, 19th century. And he, you know, went with nothing. He didn't fundraise. And time and again, you know, through prayer, they were supplied with exactly what they needed. And there are other, you know, many other Christians. Um, Dorothy Day is one that many people will be familiar with who, you know, just freed themselves from possessions. And um, as Hudson Taylor said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. But you really have to have this radical trust and, um, you know, abandonment of your will to possess. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's something that's not tried often enough, you know, and, and you know, it, it does take a church, it does take, you know, brothers and sisters who will be there for you when you need help, which we all do. Um, but that really is, I think, what, you know, there's, I can't imagine there will be money in the kingdom of God, you know, and so we should leave the things that aren't going to be there. Let's try to leave them behind us and then, you know, um, go from there. So let's get down to some sort of nittier, grittier stuff or the practicalities. Who does handle the money in the community? How does it all work? Like, what are the, how, what's the, what are the mechanisms? If someone is given responsibility to spend money on behalf of the community, um, you're always thinking of how to do it wisely, how, you know, and how to um, make the most of it or, um, and you never spend money on your own um, volition. I always, at least I always try to get someone to approve it before it's spent so that I'm not the one making the decision on it um, alone. Um, and I've, I mean, I've worked with our CEO of, of the businesses and um, I was just really amazed and um, oh gratified to see that he would not even so much as order a book from Amazon without first checking with the steward if that would be okay. You know, we certainly had the money but he's not going to go just on a whim, order something for himself. Um, and that, that said a lot to me. Each of us is responsible for the, um, for the you know, earnings of the community and, and to be good stewards ourselves. We do have stewards and um, it's, you know, we do have people that watch our finances and um, steward our money but it's more the responsibility that is shared by all i think one of the things that people might be worried about is like a suppression of individuality or individual initiative and what i've actually seen is almost the opposite like one of the things that the brewerhof do a whole lot of and i'm thinking in particular of jay swinger but like a lot of people do it is just like kind of get notions like get an idea to build a treehouse and then you kind of get you know you organize it and you do it or get an idea to start and you know what's the thing that, you, that the swingers Coleman are corners on? yeah Coleman corners the the there's like a little sort of um you know gift and produce stall that sort of serves the community and I think they're starting a coffee aren't they starting like a coffee van or something like bus. that a bus a coffee we, bus yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of kind of like small individual projects that people and hobbies that people take up 
really like with gusto (laughs) with a degree of kind of like commitment and um kind of excellence that is seems pretty rare to me partly because a lot of people you know kind of don't have don't really have the skills or don't really like wouldn't know where to begin with you know how to build a sort of lord of the rings themed tree tree house um or giant pirate ship <laughs> or whatever else jay's done um i think he built a harp at one point anyway so there and there is this so there is this kind of like quirky individualism as well as the kind of community focus um which i'm not even sure you guys realize how unusual it is but it is very unusual and it's really charming what are each of you kind of working on these days or what do you know of other people working on what are what are the latest kind of projects claire is a very skilled potter yeah my avocation is pottery and i started doing that when i came to the community i hadn't done it before and we were we just opened a, and built and opened a new school in the community I was living in. And one of the things the community does is as a, as a whole group, you have 200, 300 people trooping through the school, looking at it while it's brand new and, you know, sort of taking possession of the, the space and the, what's been put into it. And I remember looking in the pottery and thinking, well, first of all, it's very clean because no one had used it, which is unusual, thinking, I've always wanted to do this. If I was living outside, I'd have to take lessons and I'd have to drive there. And then I wouldn't have time to practice. Here I can just walk up and practice any time, you know, of when I'm not working. And I just started doing that. And um, it was a really, I found it's a really good um, balance between if my work is not creative, I can go up there and be creative. Um, if my work is creative, I don't need that outlet as much. So I've been doing that for about 25 years now. Yeah, I've I've eaten breakfast off of some of those. Oh, yes. Plates. <laughs> well, what we do is um, I do it with another member of the community, and she does the plates, and I do the, um, the things that are thrown on the wheel. And we sell them at Coleman Corners. Um, and then we send the money that we earn from them to an indigenous community in Bolivia, because I'm not... You know, I'd like to just keep that money flowing somewhere that's needed. And um, and our, another potter in the community who's since passed away started doing that and sent, sending his proceeds to this community. And so we picked that up. So this is actually another, this gets into another kind of um, area of, of Ruderhof finances. But you guys are very charitable. Like you do give a lot to other people, other communities, other um, institutions and causes. How are those decisions made? I mean, some things are like Claire, you know, she has an initiative, she she knows, you know, her pottery, and then she um, will tell the steward, listen, we, we took in $500 this weekend, I would like to send it to the community in Bolivia. Um, there's many small scale missions like that that go on. And then we also partner with, um, Save the Children, um, World Vision, some of the, the bigger um, organizations. And actually the, the contributions we make to them are often of personnel. So because of the way we live, um, we can send 20 volunteers overnight to a you know disaster zone. And so our, our people have been trained by the um, 
by by these charities and and we can just they can just drop their work and we'll cover for everyone else will cover for them and go and help when there's been an earthquake or go you know set up a hospital tent um in a war zone or something and so that's something we're able to do just you like i said community is very flexible and efficient and so um as far as where we give money um people you know when there's obvious needs um you know a war in ukraine um people will express that we need to send resources there and then we will yeah like that that sort of ability to turn on a dime and reorganize and deploy people is also something that's really i think unusual i would like to recommend a book for anybody who wonders what it feels like to join a community and i was actually thinking the main character in this book is a lot like claire because she was a um, professional woman who um after you know becoming very accomplished in her profession turned her back on it and in the book she becomes a nun and it's called in this house of breed by rumor garden and it follows this woman's path into a contemplative um, Catholic order. But reading it as a member of a religious community, it absolutely nails um, <laughs> a lot of the things you go through and the way that you have to relate to your community members who you might not get along with at times and the things that you surprise you by being more wonderful than you could have imagined. So it really gets that. Um, it's a really beautiful book. Um, and as you read it, you'll see that for this woman giving up her money is kind of the least of her worries and that reflects i think many of our experiences um is that that's kind of small a, a small sacrifice um compared to you know giving up the ability to choose what you do some of the time um we will definitely link to that in the show notes and we will also link to foundations of our faith and calling which is the kind of bruderhof constitution so to speak yeah, I also think it might be a good idea. There are teachings on this by, you know, Anabaptist, um, the the founders of the Anabaptist movement in the 15th century, they wrote on this subject of community of goods and why they felt it was important. And so I think we should link to those things as well for people who are wondering, like, is this really a thing or is this just like a made up, um, <laughs> a made up idea? Because it, it really is based in, and these were people who truly gave up everything, who shared all their money and possessions, but more than that, they risked their lives. And, you know, many of them were led singing to their deaths um, for, you know, joy in what they had found as, you know, being members of this church. And so that also, you know, when I say we give up our choice, like to, to put it in the context of like, you know, the choices that our fathers and mothers have made in history, like it's, it's not much. <laughs> but anyways, I, I do think it's important to, to say, you know, these, these things are, are based on, you know, seeking in scripture and also um, th then um, a gift of the spirit to be able to say, yes, we trust and love each other enough to like completely throw in our lot with each other. Yeah. So this is, this is a mode of life and a kind of pattern of life that has stuck its head up periodically, very, not, not incredibly commonly, but very regularly throughout the history of the church. And obviously the Anabaptist communities of the radical reformation were a part of that, but they weren't the only ones. I have a quote which I love from Brideshead Revisited because this also cracks me up every time. And it's very true for those of you who are out there being like, wow, I could never do this um, and so forth. But this is in Brideshead Revisited, the main character is talking to 
um, to Catholic monastics. And they're like, did you go to see the cricket? And he's like, never, I said. And he looked at me with an expression I've since seen in the religious of innocent wonder that those who expose themselves to the dangers of the world should avail themselves so little of its varied solace. Well, Alistair is making me see the cricket. So, like, oh, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen I've never seen cricket. I've no idea. But Claire, do you does that sentiment ring true to you? Yes, but I, I've um, I found cricket very confusing when I've oh, yeah. I watched it. I'm not I'm not saying for cricket. I'm just saying in general. I'm like no, you no, know. I there's think a, we should focus on cricket. I think cricket there's is a really great key here. You know, you see, like there's a great show on in the Met. I'm like, you could go if you wanted. Okay. <laughs> I'm really feeling very motivated to either give up all my possessions or go to the Met. I'm yeah, not, do not one of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, literally. So the the bargain is. Um, I'm going to make Alistair take a dance lesson. And in exchange for that, he's making me sit through a test match, which it's like four days. I don't, I don't know. He says they're like one day ones and he's going to oh, let me off with it. Yeah. He was trying to explain it. I don't, I'll, I'll get back to you, but yeah, I am going to go not being a member of the Bruderhof. I am going to go see the cricket. Oh, good. Makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Saurabh Amari about his new book, Tyranny, Inc.